Oats for Breakfast. Oats for Breakfast is affiliated with the Socialist Project, an eco-socialist organization based in Toronto. I'm Sia. And I'm Omer. On our podcast today is the illustrious Sam Gindin. We're going to be talking about the election in Ontario. Yeah, and we'll also get into talking about the limits of the NDP. This is a pretty well-observed election. Yeah, this has been uh, a, quite a thing to follow, I guess. Doug Ford is kind of a personality, as was his brother, his late brother, uh, Rob Ford who became in a kind of international sensation after the whole scandal with him having smoked crack. So he became a big star in the U.S. especially, but elsewhere in the world. And so I, I was in Turkey last year, and uh, people there knew of Rob Ford. Really? Yeah. Oh. Yes. And I think it's partly because he's the brother of Rob, that Doug also got that attention. But then there's also the issue of Trump having been elected, and him being a kind of Trump type of guy. You Trump know, light? Trump, is, it, is he Trump light? Is that the term? I've heard that. I see. Well, you know, but the kind of persona of the kind of person you, you could sit down and have a beer with. We are a folks and friends to Doug Ford. Yeah, everyone's a friend. friend. Everyone's a folk. Friends. Does he say folks? He stops saying folks. He starts saying friends. Yeah, that's, that's what I've heard is friends. It's yeah. the first time I felt like a politician, you know, really reached out to me. Oh, really? Yeah. Doug Ford, you know, when you look at the kind of things he does, just cookie cutter populist. He deploys the same rhetoric, the same tactics, the same discourse of outrage as any other populist throughout this world. Yeah. With Sam, of course, we talked about the global context a little bit to frame our discussion about what's happening around the world as far as the the rise of right-wing populism. And then we also talked about the limits of the NDP. So the NDP, uh, when the election process started, it didn't look like necessarily that, you know, they were going to make up the amount of ground that they did. And partly they were able to do this by uh, offering a a rather progressive agenda. Yeah, I got really excited when I saw it. Um, The NDP were offering uh, free dental care, free child care for some... Was it it free child care? It was free child care for people making under $40,000 a year. And then offering on average the price of childcare at $12 a day, which is pretty drastically lower than what a lot of people are paying, especially in Toronto, where the average cost of childcare is like $20,000 a year. But they still lost. I think people are thinking, well, you know, after Doug Ford, it'll be the NDP's turn. And what Sam offers is a very sobering assessment of what to expect from an NDP government. And certainly it would be better than you know, a, a conservative government and very likely a, a liberal government, but it, there are important limits that we have to consider and think about as socialists. And, and you know, once we have, we, once we have this sobering assessment, how, how do we chart out a, a strategic course 
to do something with it. And I think that's part of what we want to try to do with this podcast is to offer some kind of strategic depth. So should we go to the interview now? Yeah, let's go cut to the interview. Sam Ginnon is a labor activist who spent much of his life working as a director of research for the Canadian auto workers. He's a co-author, along with uh, Leo Panitch, of The Making of Global Capitalism, The Political Economy of the American Empire, the Unifor Sam Ginnon Chair in Social Justice and Democracy at Ryerson University was created in honor of the role Sam has played in the Canadian labor movement. It is the first union endowed chair at a Canadian university. Usually you have to die to get something that, like that named after you. I have a story about this. Brian Palmer, when he heard that I that this chair was named in my honor, thought I died. <laughs> and, and I gave him a call one day and he was shocked that I was alive. <laughs> All right, so do you want to get us started, Amir? Sure. Um, so the election of Doug Ford in Ontario seems to be uh, part of a broader global trend. Uh, in recent years, the hard right has been growing in strength around the world, across Europe, Turkey, India, Latin America. How can we understand the rise of the far right in the context of the workings of global capitalism? And why is it now Ontario's turn? I, I think as a start, it's important to recognize that behind all of this is obviously a lot of frustration that uh, globalization has led to in terms of insecurities, uh, inequalities, just the restructuring of everyday life. So that's one material base that's been happening everywhere. But I, I think it's important to understand that it's also left led to left movements taking on the frustrations of people's lives. Mm -hmm. Sanders, Corbyn, uh, Podemo, Syriza. Uh, to some extent. So it isn't just a right phenomenon. There's something going on here which speaks to the failure of the left to take advantage of it, and therefore the right has, on the mm -hmm. one hand. The other thing is, I think when you think about, you know, there might be that underlying reality of uh, globalization and how it's affected people. This also seems, you, you have to look at history and the specificity of particular places. So when you're looking at Eastern Europe, you're thinking about people who were uh, under the, you know, within the Soviet empire before. Mm -hmm. And some of the move to the right is also a reaction to communism. If you're looking at this in terms of uh, the Middle East, you've got a whole different history in, in Israel or in Turkey and similarly in Latin America. So you have to be careful about just saying it's a common thing everywhere. There's obviously differences in the form that it's taken. And, he, and even in Ontario, uh, there's differences between Ford and Trump mm -hmm. uh, in terms of Ford had a very strong base uh, in communities of color amongst immigrants. The extent to which uh, he was able to win a base within the immigrant community. Mm -hmm. That begins to raise questions both about class and about generation. Uh, there's a lot of immigrants who are not opposed to immigration, but they're opposed to illegal immigration. And they're upset because they feel like they went through the lineups and everything else to get this, and then somebody else is cutting in in the queue. And you have to you have to address those complexities rather than write them off as racist or just self-centered. So I think well, that that's some, critical. Some immigrants might be okay with certain kinds of immigration, but they don't want Africans coming in or they don't want Filipinos coming in. I, 
I mean, absolutely. There's, there's yeah, it's, of it's not a, it's not a homogeneous yeah. thing. I, yeah. I can give you an example of uh, just organizing within the left in San Francisco. There was a group called Power. They were organizing uh, basically low-income workers, mm-hmm. mostly uh, women, and they ended up organizing in the group uh, first a lot of blacks and then a lot of Latinos. And then over time, there was you know, this great conflict between the Latinos and the blacks. Latinos were asking, well, what's your problem? You've been here for centuries. How come you haven't made it? Mm-hmm. And uh, the blacks were saying, yeah, well, you didn't go through slavery. And the question is, well, how do you deal with this? And the first impulse, actually the majority impulse, was to divide it into two sections. Mm-hmm. Let's have a Latino section and a black section. And the leadership fought against it and convinced people to have a class in the summer, a six-week program, I think it was, mm-hmm. that gave a history of Central America and a history of uh, American slavery. And what people began to understand was there were some links here. Mm-hmm. And there was, you know, the, the legacy of that kind of past exploitation and how it played itself through and kept playing itself through. And that was the basis, that kind of historical education was the basis of actually getting them to understand each other in a way that they could actually build some unity. Right. So I, I think, you know, the question that you're raising about it's, it's not homogeneous. Right. And, you know, you have to think about these divisions within people, you know, including amongst the people of color and including within amongst people who are black. They can be Jamaican, they can be Somali. Right. Uh, it's really critical. And that's the kind of stuff that I think we really need to think about and talk about if we're going to deal with this. Well, uh, Doug Ford certainly found a way to unite them all. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Although you always want to not. It's depressing, but you also don't want to exaggerate it because somebody gets elected with about a quarter yeah. of the vote and then people generalize about the sweep. Yeah. And then when you really look at it, you see, well, there's, there's an enormous base for organizing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's true. If I could maybe go back to your point about how we shouldn't just look at this as the right rising, it's also the left has also seen some gains. Um, so maybe we can look at the left kind of contender that was running against Ford, which is the NDP, the New Democratic Party. So they had a pretty progressive platform, including things like free dental, free childcare, expanding mandatory paid vacation to three weeks. So this was exciting for a lot of people, including myself, but they didn't win. Um, so why, why is it that the left didn't win or, you know, what we have as left didn't win in Ontario and, and seems to be failing in a lot of other places as well? Well, you know, when I say that there were opportunities on the left, what I'm trying to emphasize is that people's frustrations can go one way or the other. It's not like people are right wing. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got frustrations and it's a question of who can speak to them and who can mobilize around them. And... Uh, the left has kind of reemerged with Sanders and Corbyn and some of the things going on in Europe. But the left has suffered major defeats over the last 30 years. I mean, what we have to understand is these defeats, which lowered expectations, fragmented things, uh, meant that the, the left, what was left of the left, was trying to accommodate to capitalism and win things uh, within that system. So it's the defeats of the left that I think have limited the ability of the left to play a role in actually mobilizing people around the real fundamental things that are affecting their lives. So you can't just turn that around in an election. And when you're looking at the NDP, it's even more serious because uh, the NDP's response to neoliberalism historically has been to accommodate to it. 
Well, what would have happened had the NDP won? They would have been better and they wouldn't have been attacking um, unions and the poor and the $14 minimum wage. But it's still a question of how far can they go and whether people will get alienated because it doesn't change that much, especially when capital is going to react uh, with any kind of a left-wing government and uh, make things harder. And so, so the question is, well, what do you do even if you get elected and you're interfering with capitalism's workings and there's a reaction against it? And then the question is, do you retreat and say, I guess we're going too far? And you end up alienating people and they do move to the right. Or do you say, no, we have to go further. That's the lesson. We have to actually start challenging their power. And the NDP isn't interested in that because the NDP, it has no vision of changing society. Right. It wants to get elected and uh, have a kinder capitalism. Yeah. So it doesn't have that larger vision. And underlying that, well, even if the NDP got elected and said, we want to be radical, yeah. they probably couldn't be because they haven't built a base for it. You can't just decide one day you're going to be radical and tell everybody you're going to do these things and then corporations start leaving. And what do you say? Uh, you actually have to be educating people and preparing them for this long fight so that when you take it on, you can really take it on. Because the first thing, you know, an NDP leader will say, well, people don't want us to do these things. People out there aren't that really that radical. Yeah, because you haven't actually spent decades educating them. And what a, what a socialist party would be doing uh, and has to be doing is saying we're part of eventually transforming society. We actually believe that people can change society. And what we're about is educating them and giving them the understandings and the capacities and the structures that they can fight through. And the NDP doesn't do that. It's interested in getting you to vote a particular way, getting you to make some financial contributions, getting you to knock on some doors. But the idea of actually believing that people, if they had the understanding and the capacities, could actually dream about a different world and change it, this isn't what they're doing. Oh, no, that's really sad. <laughs> well, it's sad, but it's. I think we shouldn't just leave it as it's sad. What it is is the reality of what the NDP is. That is its history, its structures. And uh, the question is, can the left... Uh, develop and create something different because it isn't a matter of hoping that the NDP will say that we should be more radical. It's a question of there being a left that wants to organize around something more radical. So what can the left do in the present political context? Well, I guess part of the larger question is, uh, so Ford wins and is that kind of over? When somebody like Ford gets elected and does things like, say, you were promised a $15 an hour wage, but you're not going to get it. Mm -hmm. And even people who had already gotten the $14 an hour wage see that their bosses are cutting their benefits to make up for it or making them work harder. Uh, there's a lesson there, or, or cutting health and safety inspectors. There's a lesson there, and that is that unless you have a union, you're not going to get any of this. Mm -hmm. Even if they give you decent laws, they're not going to be implemented, or they're going to change them. So there's a lesson that you need a union. So there's an enormous opportunity to actually organize. That's one of the things this moment should be raising. Mm. Uh, now, the problem is that unions themselves have become so oriented to their own sector and defending their own members that they think of organizing as, can we get new members with new dues? Mm. 
Whereas if you really want to organize low-paid, precarious workers, you'd have to see it as building the class. It doesn't matter if you're going to make money from it because mm-hmm. they're low wages, or it doesn't matter if we're going to get the members. The question is, are they going to get some power? Mm-hmm. And to do that, you need a labor movement that's thinking in terms of class. That would actually say something like, look, we're a province-wide organization. There's Tim Hortons all over this province who uh, everyone's act angry at, even the public. Mm-hmm. They see them as ripping off these workers. Why don't we in each community get all labor unions together and say, we're going to organize them? Yeah. And what you would begin to do is create a spirit amongst young people that, hey, unions are where it's at. That used to be what the feeling was like. They're the people who are le- really leading the struggle with resources and structures and they can do things they can stop things you know truck drivers can stop bringing things to tim horton etc so it could be part of a revival of the labor movement but that requires this revolution inside trade unions Mm -hmm. but it's something that should be raised and thought about that's one thing and the related thing to that right now is that there's going to be a massive attack on the public sector you know his promises to uh, but he to, said no cuts. Yeah, he said no Just cuts. Just efficiencies. And if you actually take a look at Natalie Mahar from the Ontario Hospital Coalition has actually taken a look at uh, how deep the cuts were under Harris. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what Ford is promising with no cuts. And uh, you'll have to check the numbers with her, but I think it was something like Harris cutting 39 hospitals and Ford would have to cut a lot more. Yeah. So something big is going to happen in terms of cuts. And then the question is, well, how does the trade union movement respond? And if the trade union movement responds by saying we want a higher wage in healthcare or education, uh, that's going to be used to say, Ford will immediately say, well, what do you want, services or the wage? And it's those workers who are taking away your service. Mm-hmm. So if workers want to protect their wages and pensions in the long term, they have to get the public on their side. There's no choice. And to do that, they're going to have to become the leaders in this fight back on social services. And again, I think there's a potential to do that because just to protect the institution, uh, they're going to get killed if they don't rethink. So, you know, you can, you can argue for wage improvements for the lowest paid workers in the sector, the cleaners and the hospitals, etc. But uh, you have to see that, hey, at this moment in time, what we have to talk about is the social service. And we have to show everybody, not by putting billboards up, by organizing. And even in bargaining, by talking about the service. Make bargaining not about your benefits, but about the collective benefits. And again, it ends up to be a class issue when you do that. So that's kind of some things that could be done. I think there's opportunities simply because there's a contradiction for them. You know, he, he can't, he can't say no cuts. He can't do that. Yeah. So there's a contradiction for him. And, and sometimes when you have cuts, it's not obvious that there's a contradiction because people aren't immediately affected, but they'll be affected. They'll go to the hospital with their kids and they'll see that, or their, you know, their parents and they'll see that there's no beds, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a contradiction. And they'll say we should privatize this because yeah. it'll be run better. Well, this is one of the dangers because I think that one of the ways, you know, the question is, well, how do you get around this? There'll be no cuts. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they can't do that for every service. So they can't no. go to school. No, but they do... can do an awful lot. They can do it to schools. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, in the States, they've been doing the charter schools. I think it'd be very yeah. hard, but... Well, I, I just feel no, kind of one of the ways of not cutting the service is to say, yeah, we'll privatize. And that becomes enormously uh, dangerous. So, you know, but but I I think that around something like health care, it's got enough 
hegemony in society and Canadian society. It's partly how Canadians define themselves. That's different from the Americans. Mm-hmm. That'll be very hard for him to do. Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, around education stuff, you can educate people around what's happening to their kids in schools and what it's important, you know. Mm-hmm. So I just think that in terms of practical things, there's going to be an opportunity for pushback. That doesn't mean that it'll be pushed back. So I think it, it keeps coming back to what are we going to do? You know, the notion of, well, he can't do this because people will get angry. No, he, he can do it. Yeah. Uh, and he can accept that anger and, and you know, blame high-paid teachers or whatever he wants for it. But there's going to be an opportunity, and the question is, you know, what can we do about that? I'm wondering, so 20 years ago, I was 10 years old, and, and Mike Harris was in power, um, and I was still learning to speak English. Uh, you know, Harris government eventually fell, or the conservative government fell, um, and the liberals came in. They stayed in power for 16 years. You know, eventually, once again, you have a hard right government come to power. Can we try and make sure this this cycle doesn't repeat itself? Is it possible for the left yeah. to be on a better footing? Yeah. Uh, so the question of whether if Ford gets defeated and you go back to kind of liberals or an NDP government, it's still going to be a question of if you want to have a decent welfare state in capitalism, uh, you can only go so far. The, the, po- the post-war period was a period of rapid growth, and you could, you know, to legitimate international restructuring and everything else, they made concessions, and they could because it was a period of growth. Uh, today, it's not clear that you can have that kind of a welfare state without actually challenging capitalism. Like the options have been polarized. Mm-hmm. You know, if the NDP gets elected and has a progressive platform, that's good. I think they should be engaged. You know, if we're all on the same side on childcare, sure, have mm-hmm. a common form. But I think what's missing, what's missing is somebody has to talk about socialism and the long term and what capitalism really means and the limits capitalism imposes on changing the world in a good direction. And that if you don't take that on, it actually gets worse. Yeah. And, and, and that's what's missing. And somehow we have to use this moment to start building that. Now, whether we can or not, I don't know. In the U.S., certainly, there the left has gotten a bump from, from Trump being in power. And so you have organizations yeah. like the Democratic Socialists for America, thousands of new members, and lots more activity. Yeah, I yeah. think they went from 3,000 to 50,000. Yeah, like 43,000 I heard last, but maybe oh. it's 50. Yeah. yeah. Um, but in Canada, we don't seem to see the same kind of thing. Well, it'll be interesting to see what what Ford brings out. Mm -hmm. But we should think about some of those things, again, as socialists. Like what Sanders showed was things that we actually didn't expect on the left, that there's these millions of people who will actually support somebody who calls himself a socialist and actually has a pretty progressive platform. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that you can actually raise money to match the Hillary Clintons. That's an unbelievable thing Mm -hmm. that this was shown. And yet I think what was also going on, Leo and I have made this argument in one of our articles, is that it was also a shortcut for people. They, they were thinking that we just elect this guy and then that'll lead to change rather than this is a moment of building. This shows that things are possible 
And, you know, when this is over, we got to have cells in each city and organizers in each city. And eventually, you know, and that didn't really happen. I mean, the Democratic Socialist for America thing is great, but 50,000 people mm. in, you know, a country of 325 million people is still a long way from, you know, I mean, I'm just saying that consciousness right. that it wasn't good enough. And it does raise really strategic questions because the, the, they have to now say, well, do we want to work within the Democratic Party or do we want to build something outside of it? And I'm not sure it's a good idea to fight over answering that right now. Mm-hmm. It would just divide things. I think, but I still think you need uh, within the Democratic Socialists of America people who are socialists and accept the fact, okay, you want to work in the Democrats, I don't agree with you, but who go into the party and say, look, we'll make democratic decisions, which we'll accept. But as socialists, we're really thinking about, you know, for it all successful, the Democrats are going to throw us out. We know that. So how do we prepare for that? How do we make more socialists so we're ready for it? And it seems to me that that has to be, without being sectarian about it, because you can do it in a way that just freezes everything. What about in Canada, though? Uh, in Canada. Um, because here, people just seem to delay the question of the left getting organized, partly because there's already the NDP. Yeah, yeah. it's a few things. One is that Canadians look at themselves as far to the left of the Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that kind of satis- you know, there's a satisfaction from it. Like, uh, we're not like them as if we're, you know, they exaggerate the differences. And you see that in the trade union movement because we've got over 25% of the workforce organized. They don't have half of that. But it's not like having them organized. We're able to actually do a lot of different things. So Canadians look at unionization. They look at the NDP as a political party and that these are differences. And these are things to, you know, to really uh, also expose, to say, yeah, that's very good. And, you know, the, the NDP does give you some space. It's good to have a party that's closer to the labor movement. But we really have to talk about the limits of it honestly. Uh, but it does make it harder to kind of introduce a left since there's nothing, you know, if there wasn't an NDP. But the problem is, is if there wasn't an NDP, people would try to create an NDP. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily that they would create a socialist party. So, yeah, I, I, I guess I don't think of these things in terms of optimism or pessimism. I think of it in terms of there's a challenge, mm-hmm. and it's always been a difficult challenge, and we got to figure out how to do it. And that's what socialism has always been about. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sam. Uh, yeah, this has been a really fantastic discussion. Yeah. So that was a really great interview from Sam Ginden. I think what I took away most from the interview is, you know, what we're up against. This isn't going to be a smooth ride. Ford is going to greatly dismantle the social institutions that we hold dear, like healthcare, education, health and safety, you name it, it's going to be cut. Um, So what did you take away from that, Umar? Well, I took away a few things. Um, I think Sam's discussion, especially of the structural constraints of capitalist society, are especially something that we need to consider Because it's very easy in a time like now, when we have a hard right government in power, to say, well, we just need to fight to get the social democrats in. And 
Yeah. If they're in, then that's going to be much better. And certainly, as he says, it'll be better. But you, you know, it's, it doesn't take us out of the the dynamics, which always take us back. It seems to to the hard right coming to power and creating all these messes. We will uh, also be talking to Sam in the next episode of the podcast. We'll be talking to him about the days of action. Days of Action were a series of community shutdowns that went through Ontario when the last Conservative government was in power. Unions came together and organized community shutdowns throughout the province. Yeah, so we'll be talking to Sam a bit about that in in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in. And thanks to those of you who subscribe to the podcast. We're, of course, really in the early stages of building this thing. So please subscribe, and if you can, toss us five bucks through Patreon. Yeah, and you can do that by going to patreon.com slash oatsforbreakfast. Becoming a patron will give you access to exclusive interviews. For those people who subscribe within the next week, they will get the chance to win the newly released book by Leo Panich and Sam Gindin called The Socialist Challenge Today. You mean, though, like those people who become patrons get a chance to win not just subscribe what did i say you said subscribe right those who uh become patrons or is it patron it's patron okay so don't miss out we have a smaller pool right now so your chances are pretty good and we'll get sam and leo to sign the book for you sam and leo will sign the book for you thanks again for tuning in